I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I am bouncing off the walls because it's Ancient History Day today. And as you all very much know, I am a closet ancient historian. That's not much of a secret, is it, Marin? No, it's not. Not really. You do rave about it a bit. I do love it. I should have been a classicist, really. Give up, give up the <laughs> modern, modern history. Marin, tell us who we've we got today. So today we are privileged to have with us Greg Wolf, who since 2015, you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong here, Robert, but since 2015, I think you've been the director of the Institute of Classical Studies and the Professor of Classics at University of London. That's right. Um, you are... No doubt about it, you are a renowned cultural historian of the ancient world, and I don't think it's unfair to say that over the years you have changed people's views on what we understand now and how we perceive the Roman Empire in particular. Um, much of your work combines archaeological and historical material to explore history in the, in the real round and in the long term, but your most recent book includes a veneer of theoretical and practical challenges as to the impact of demographics, human geography and environmental science. It's quite a mixed bag. In The Life and Death of Ancient Cities, which I think is really meaningfully titled, subtitled A Natural History, you get us to think long and hard about what it means as human beings to invent and then live in and constantly change cities. Something as simple as cities. Don't you? That's, that's the idea. That's the idea. Should we, should we start with what is a city in its purest form? Well, lots of people have tried to define it. A city is a place where lots of people live together, maybe not huge numbers, at least a few hundred, usually a few thousand, often today many more. And they don't just live together. They create a kind of society where people take different roles. So some farm some make some there are doctors priests soldiers and this is what makes it so different from a big village because a large village you also have lots of people living together but they all do more or less the same thing they're all roughly the same level of wealth they're all are engaged in farming or maybe very occasionally in fishing and other kinds of activity too but it's a it's a society without many differences inside it and when cities appeared for the first time 6,000 years ago, we began to move towards these societies that are differentiated, they're stratified. There are huge differences of wealth and privilege and power between different members. Uh, the archaeology of a city looks different to the archaeology of a village because there are big buildings, there are com communal buildings, um, open marketplaces, places to meet, maybe temples, town halls, law courts and so on. And that's that cluster of things together is what so makes it. So it's the granularity, it's, it's so many different things coming together that makes it a city. Yep, it's it's complexity. It's um it's a kind of very complicated nest that people are good at living together in. And you can do things with it that you can't do with other kinds of cohabitation. 
I've got to say, I, I was so shocked when I picked up your book to read it, and it's it's supposed to be about ancient histories, which it is about ancient histories, but I wasn't expecting it to go so far back in time and into the into literally into the Iron Ages, and you start to talk about things like apes. So can you tell our listeners, what do apes have to do with any of this, and how do they fall into this whole narrative of cities? Well, it does. It's went back a lot further than I thought it would when I started writing it. And I mean, one reason I did that is because I got quite influenced by a series of books that have been written recently. Um, one of them is called Deep History and Other Maps of Time, which have suggested that if we want to understand how human societies work, we need to think about humans with a bit more perspective. And so one of the things that it helps to think about is, you know, what would a city created by uh, by wildebeest look like what would a city created by bears or whatever and you begin to realize some of these cities are less plausible than others so what's about our species that makes us good at living in cities and some of the things one is that we um we we have over millions of years developed to be highly social beings and that uh, we are we really don't live very well on our own as most of us are found in lockdown uh, we really need large groups of people to function. And compared to um, other apes, uh, we've got one of the biggest frontal cortexes. Our brain has evolved in this direction. So that's one part of it. But there's other things that make us good at living in cities, that we move easily in three dimensions. That would be a problem for the wildebeest, wouldn't it? Trying to get up off the tower block. But apes are pretty good at that. And we're also not at all finickety about what we eat. We can eat huge numbers of different things, which which helps if you're living in a, a trophically impoverished environment like a city, because cities are full of dirt and they're not like the countryside. And you, if you're living packed together, you can't just move on till you find something good to eat, move to a new, a new river if the river you're on doesn't have the fish you want to eat. So we have to be quite tolerant. We're not the only animal that's good at that. I mean, rats are very good for cities. They, they're they very sociable. Um, they eat all sorts of stuff. They move easily in three dimensions. They don't build cities of their own, but I didn't build most of the cities I've lived in. So as a species, we're pretty, we're pretty well adapted to be able to do this thing. So this is really interesting. Is it like Maslow's hierarchy? Is it that sense of um, we've got to focus on sustenance and eating that actually shapes the city. I think that makes a huge difference. Um, people don't only come together for that. I mean, there's all sorts of other reasons that bring us together. But yes, thinking about the way that we eat, the way that we breed, the way that we socialise, I mean, in the way you would for any animal. That's why it's a natural history. If you imagined you were watching a David Attenborough program about a great, great coral reef or about um, the African savannah. All the same questions would come together. So that that's my approach to the city. And what, what is it? You know, eating, breeding, socialising, how you organise conflict, how you organise activity together. And, you know, this does shape the way cities have developed. If we're talking about development, I mean, the human brain developed over time didn't it i mean how did that make us better suited to living in cities okay well here i should admit cities are an accident um that our <laughs> brains had developed and our guts and our limbs and all the other bits and pieces of us that that are important um developed in very different settings so 
uh, there have been humans for between three and two hundred thousand years, and then there have been many other uh, close relatives of humans. Um, and of course, for a lot of the time, there have been more than one species of humans around on the planet. And we've only lived in cities for the last six thousand years, so most of our evolution took place in a world without cities. And what I argue in the book is that because of the because of the kind of changes that we underwent as a species for other reasons, we have accidentally developed the qualities that make us good at living in cities. And this is a, this is familiar in evolutionary theory to see how changes developed for one reason end up being co-opted to other purposes later. So the classic example is dinosaur feathers. Dinosaurs develop feathers not to fly because they can't fly. They develop them as a way of probably regulating body heat. But at the moment, whereas a particular group of dinosaurs begin to take the first experiments into flight, having feathers turned out to be a really, really useful thing to make use of. And so that's that's humans in cities. All these things I've talked about are were developed for other purposes. The reason we can eat almost anything is because we lived in a series of unstable environments where the climate changed enormously and we couldn't just rely on one resource. We couldn't only rely on meat. We couldn't only rely on fruit. So nowadays, well or badly, we eat all sorts of different things. But that isn't about the world we live in now. It's because we had already developed those abilities that we're able to colonise the world we live in now and spread onto all continents. So this is really interesting because what we're talking about is a, almost a call and response in terms of um, feeling our way through evolution. When we look back, I and mean, you went back as far as the dinosaurs there, if we go back to our ancestors as human beings then, when did we decide to settle down and cluster together? And, and when, did we, when did we stop foraging and actually become collections of farmers? Well, the key moment seems to be at the end of the last ice age, the beginning of what's called the Holocene period, where by that stage, we were already technologically and socially very adept. We already lived in complicated societies. We, we'd already had dogs. Uh, we'd spread already from Africa into uh, Asia, Australasia, then later into Europe and the Americas. All of those things happened. But at the end of the ice age, and begin the Holocene period, uh, we begin began to develop cl- ways of using our environment more intensively, and this yeah. leads to farming. So there were there were groups of gatherers and fishers and hunters who just lived in one place all the year round. If they lived in really really rich environments, we developed ways of doing this in other environments. So, we in one way you can say we moved down the food chain. We began to rely less on eating animals that ate vegetables and more on eating vegetables. Our diet became much more vegetarian and not never completely. And we began to farm. And once you begin to farm, the population rises. It becomes possible to sustain larger settlements in more places. Also, without any artificial sources of power, your ability to farm really does depend a lot on how many people you've got. So there's a positive incentive to have lots of people. Whereas hunter-gatherer populations, you really don't want to have more children than you can carry with you when you wander around. So hunter-gatherer societies tend to have a different kind of ratio of children to adults. So farming is the big start. Not all farmers become city dwellers. 
that no society has developed cities that hadn't already been farming for several thousand years. I love there's a debate in your book where you talk about who invented agriculture. So um, I'd like you to tell us actually who invented agriculture, because there is that debate. And did all humans around the world adopt it? Um, it's invented lots of different times, Alina. So there are, we find people developing agriculture, China, in what's now Iraq, in northwest India, Pakistan. There's agriculturalists in the Amazon, agriculturalists in the Mississippi. And we know these are all independent, not just because they're far apart, but because they use different basic crops. There's whole agricultural systems based on rice. In the Americas, it's mostly maize. In Africa, uh, yams. And I mean, that's simplification. But the the first agriculturalists, they had to do their own domestication. Only later domesticated crops begin to be traded around the world. So that's the first part. That's the first part of the question is, Lots of people invented it. Did everyone adopt it? No, there are still people, populations today who don't. Um, if you live in the Arctic Circle, there's not much good being a, an agriculturalist because you haven't got anywhere you can pluck your plants. Um, there are some populations in deserts and very dry zones in Africa in particular, um, which rely very heavily on, on livestock, which they now herd rather than um, rather than hunt. There are a small group of societies that are hunters and gatherers. For a long time, there were sort of frontiers, the areas where, so the, the South Island in New Zealand, uh, for a long time was hunter-gatherers, and the North Island was farmers. And that's because the people who settled North New Zealand were part of the great Polynesian diaspora. And the crops they had grew nearer the equator, they didn't grow in the south anymore so they started to go back well not for them back but they went back to a system of gathering and hunting so we find these balances all around the world but nowadays virtually everybody is an agriculturalist or they get their food from agriculturalists this is fascinating. So tell me, when we think of farmers today, we well, well we, we can stereotype what farming community looks like today. When we're talking about the, the, the farmers who are um, nurturing agriculture then, what kind of lives were they living? Oh, very different. They, they lived in communities where the family is the sort of main economic unit. They grew lots and lots of different crops, and that's because it's simply not safe to only grow one crop if you're living near subsistence because if one crop fails you've had it so they would they would have a little of everything they would grow beans and they would grow uh, vegetable crops they would grow grains of different kinds they constantly try out different ways to uh, to use crops on different soils so pretty soon they become very sophisticated users of the environments they're on they learn to weed they learn to water they learn to manure, manure meaning you know, human manure, animal manure, anything to make that yeah. soil better. So there's this very long period. And these experiments all take place very locally. There's not there's not one place in the world that discovers manure and then it spreads out. Everybody is trying to make it work for them because the crops they use are local and the environments are ever so slightly different. So that's what early agriculturists are like. They work fantastically hard compared to 
hunter-gatherers. Hunter-gatherers maybe only needed to work two or three hours a day. Agriculturists were early ones, but phenomenally hard. They didn't yet have animals to pull plows, so they had to break up all the soil with hose. They didn't have uh, machines to break down uh, olives. They didn't have olive presses. They had to use stones and press the press the olives themselves. So really hard work, really skilled, spreading their risk like crazy, really diversifying their risk. In modern terms, they have the most diversified portfolio possible because they're more interested in surviving than in making a quick profit. I find it so fascinating how these communities all spread literally around the world. And then so suddenly they're pretty much using the same kind of tools and the same kind of means, like you said, the manure. And for example, I don't know, using the horse to plow the field, whatever, whatever it is. But it's just for me, it is just mind blowing how they're able to find the same way to do things, if that makes sense. Yes, I think. One of the things that we notice is that we see the results of successful experiments. We don't really see the results of failed experiments because people abandon it or they die. So we tend to focus on the stuff that works. And it may just be that not very many things do work. And so the reason it all looks a bit uniform is that people are stumbling quickly, we hope, rather than slowly into the stuff that works. But there's still many, many years before... Um, before there's a real spread of all these things around the world. In the Roman Empire, for example, which I've spent most of my career studying, uh, I knew a bit about rice, but they're still mostly using cereal grains. They don't have, obviously, potatoes. They haven't developed the kind of grains that produce pastas. Um, so their diets to us seem rather boring. Now, we go out to the supermarket and say, well, should we have polenta? Should we have pasta? Should we have wholemeal pasta? Should we have bread? Shall it be sourdough? Uh, do you want white or do you want brown? Uh, so just on the carbs, okay, which make it a big bit of energy intake. We have phenomenal choice. Um, and the cho- most of these societies, you're either in a place where you eat rice every day or you eat maize meal every day or you eat potatoes every day or you eat bread every day or grain. And people have had a bit more choice than that. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, so what we have is we have experimentation going on, isolated little pockets and all learning how to do different things in different ways. But as um, an extended community, they must be all experiencing some elements of the same climate or disease. 
Are there certain pockets of farming that are more successful than others generally? Ways of overcoming adversity? Yeah, I think that idea of pockets is absolutely right. And um, yeah, some crops are better than others. So if you happen to be in a, one of the many areas in Central and North America that lives off maize, you're stuck with a crop that takes a lot of energy to cultivate and isn't actually very nutritious compared to uh, grains. But until Columbus crosses over, there's no, there is no grain to use. So it's not like you can choose. So that's what I mean. It really is the last few centuries when these pockets got really connected up and it's really only the last century that something's got connected until you've got refrigerator ships. You're never going to eat fruit that doesn't grow in your own that don't live relatively near you. So um, the kind of choice we have today is unimaginable. And I mean, even sort of, you know, my parents' generation can't imagine the range of foods that we have today. Com- completely, completely. I-, I-, I can remember going into a supermarket and going, what do you mean I can buy t- tomatoes now it's all changed yeah it's all changed it's extraordinary really it's extraordinary yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, avocados all the year round yes yeah, I, know. <laughs> Alina, I mean we're talking about location i know you had a question about mesopotamia yeah, because Mesopotamia actually comes into the narrative because people, I know what people are sitting there going, how does Mesopotamia come into this whole idea? But it does. It will all make sense, people. It will make sense. Greg, can you tell us what is Mesopotamia? I mean, what does it, because it means something, doesn't it? And how does this all fit into the narrative? Well, one of the earliest areas where we see cities, which is also is the area um, that's now part of Iraq and um eastern Syria so it's the area between two rivers which is what Mesopotamia means and the two rivers are the Tigris um, and the Euphrates and this is a huge area that flows right down to the Persian Gulf and it starts up on the uh, the mountains of, of um, central Turkey and a number of different kinds of societies appear here so we have the Sumerians right down in the south living on land that is halfway between sea and land really vast areas of mud where it's all about how good you are at draining and making the most of the of the of the very fertile mud that comes down from the river and then further up you have in Assyria where people uh, are cultivating in areas on the steppe edge which you get good rainfall and some of our earliest cities appear in this area and it's about the same sort of time as people are beginning to um, create cities in Egypt, uh, where the the Nile produces all sorts of quite different um, hydro-agricultural problems. So these are areas where we begin to see some of our chronologically earliest cities. And how did they they develop agriculture within the confines? Well, not even within, but I mean... We imagine a city as being a built-up area. That's our that's our predisposed yeah. idea of what a city involves. But it's clear that actually the concept of a city can be much broader than that. So how did agriculture develop in Mesopotamia? And, and what was life like for those farming communities, perhaps interacting with each other? Well, the agriculture starts many thousands of years before cities, almost everywhere, and particularly in Mesopotamia. So crops that are domesticated in a fringe of territory some on the in in turkey some on what's now on the sort of iranian iraq border and these are people then try them out so wild grasses they pick and they sow them they develop them and 
And then from these areas on the fringe of, of Mesopotamia, people begin to then discover they can use these crops uh, further down. And a few thousand years later, uh, some of the first domesticated animals, pigs, sheep, uh, goats, um, cattle, all from this sort of same general area. It takes a little bit longer the before horses are domesticated on the South Russian steppe. So um, people gradually keep looking for ways to expand the package, so to, to add new domesticated things. And this will happen well before the cities. And then we get a point, and it's very difficult to know exactly what triggers it, where a rather well-populated agricultural areas, suddenly they see the, the villages coalesce and you get quite rapidly a shift from big villages to small cities. And sometimes it must be a local effort to, to organise themselves differently. And we can sort of see some of the things these cities, these societies can do that others can't. They can often bring people together to defend themselves better. They can make more extravagant offerings to the gods. They can also trade to the, you mentioned little pockets. There are little pockets all over. Before you can trade with distant pockets of population for food, you can trade for metals or you can trade for other products. So if you're in Mesopotamia, you've got lots of mud, you've got not much timber. So if you want timber for your buildings, you need to trade with areas like Lebanon or the foothills of the Zagros or of Anatolia. Metals are ill-distributed around the world, so you might need to go up to, Mesp- up to Anatolia for, for metals as well. You're tr- these early societies are trading by sea uh, along the um, the northern shores of the Indian Ocean to the Indus Valley. They set up complementary exchanges. There's also populations who are more involved in looking after livestock who live in the in the pre-desert on the edge of the farmed areas. If you mostly look after sheep and goats there, then you have products that people who live in the valleys need. And they have stuff you need. So we begin to see these complementary exchanges across sort of ecological fault lines. People who trade their spare grain for wool because they want to be able to make clothes. And the people in the desert don't want to just eat sheep every day. I really think Mesopotamia, gosh, I can't even say the word today, Mesopotamia, I think it deserves its own podcast because there is so much that happens in Mesopotamia from that time all the way up till now, really. I think it's such a rich in history area, isn't it? Oh, yes, it would make wonderful podcasts. And it has not just cities and armies, it has art, it has the first epic poetry and the first literatures appear in Mesopotamia development of cuneiform lots and lots you could talk about greg i think you should come back and do a, a history of mesopotamia for us i don't know what you think Mary. i think that would be a very good idea you mentioned um poetry and cuneiform um evolving and i know that um that, that area is rich in not archive but in a material that we can actually look at and analyze isn't it um yes yes well and i mean there's people much better able than me to talk about it but you get um, cuneiform on clay tablets and these clay tablets if a building burns down they get baked into hard little nodules they you know some of them are really tiny but most of them sort of um, look like I don't know a bag of sugar or something and, and largest in size many of them much smaller covered with minute but precise writing and we have lists we have uh, 
astrological tables, weather formulae, you have poets, you have the, the achievements of great kings, you have uh, mythology, other gods, um, all sorts of amazing things. There. You, you mentioned um, Sumer being the, the south of Mesopotamia, and there's a, yes. check, check my history here, is, it, is there a city called Uruk? Uruk, how do you pronounce it? Yes, Uruk is there. Yes, um, that's 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 one of the earliest ones we know. And, and yes. do we know much about that particular city? Yes, it was excavated, you know, early in the twentieth century, and a lot's known about the site. The ziggurats built there; these great artificial mountains with temples on the top, and it also features in the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, which is the old world's oldest poem, really. And and Gilgamesh was yeah, the king of cool. Uruk. Yeah. And he is, yeah, two parts God, one part man. And the whole epic begins there. And he, they described the people in Uruk as being like the sheep and him like a beast sort of chasing around the sheep pen because he starts the poem as a great tyrant and ends the poem as a benefactor of mankind. It's a wonderful I, story. I think it is. And I think it's something that we often forget is that while we, while we focus on how people lived and how they, 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 they farm, they themselves are chronicling their own evolution that often takes the form of the written word and poetry and it's handed down. This is how they learn as well, isn't it? That's right. Absolutely. Yes. Why is it, why was it such a phenomenon though? Cause it was, wasn't it? What, um, poetry or, or? Oh, no, the city, the city. Sorry, apologies. I, oh, should, have, right. <laughs> I should have made myself a bit more clearer there. Well, I mean, as historians with the, of, who are interested in the very long term, I mean, it's striking that 6,000 years ago there were no cities and now more than a half the population of a planet with nearly 8 billion people on it live in cities. And the proportion is rising dramatically and probably by the end of the 21st century, three out of every four people will live in a city. And I mean, a really big city. So, that, that's something worth chronicling, isn't it? It's not just an experiment some people tried and then got bored of. It's something that has been central to the way we're transforming the planet. Um, cities concentrate resources, and so they end up creating pockets of strength, or they're created by pockets of strength that take out surrounding populations. Societies near early states mostly end up subordinated to them. Cities are, one of the things they are, is they're traces of successful political experiments, state building, and eventually empires build even bigger cities at their heart. So lots of reasons why cities are important in world history. And of course, they're also important in a more mundane way that societies with cities are the only societies that have generated writing. So although we can know huge amounts about what you do when you can read other people's words, and so society in the historical record. Those those societies, when we look back at um, at society in general when we when we sort of cast our net out and go okay i want to examine how this this part of society has evolved or another part of society has started to evolve where would we look if we wanted to, to examine the first actual cities whereabouts in the world would, we, would you tell us to look well i think the best thing to do is to look at as many early cities as possible and that's one reason why i did try and do that so not 
just Mesopotamia, that's amazingly well documented, but also Egypt and the Indus Valley and northern China. And um, the, and then also the, the new cities that appear a little bit later in time, the cities of the Sahel just south of the Sahara or um, cities like Cahokia, which was created around the time of the Norman Conquest um, in the Mississippi Valley, where the Missouri and Mississippi rivers meet. And one reason to look at all of them is that when you look at as many as possible, you begin to see what are the recurrent features, what seem true of most of them, and what is just the local variant. So, yeah, only in Cahokia is there seems to be mass slaughter of um, of females buried under mounds. A lot of it seems to be very much about mortuary stuff at the beginning and, and religion. If you But if you look at um, the Nile Valley, this is one of the few places where you can really understand how climate and climatic change impacts, because it's such a sensitive environment that even very small changes, even when a volcano erupts, um, somewhere, a large volcano in the world, in Alaska or Indonesia, it can change the, we- the weather patterns, and this can lead to different flooding in the Nile. You suddenly see Egyptian society. It's like a barometer. So I think looking at as many as possible gives us a better sense of what cities are like. And one of the flaws, well, not a flaw, but a limitation of the early comparative studies was they would just look at Mesopotamia and Egypt and Mid- Middle America. And they'd say, well, cities always arise in arid environments. And it's always about controlling water. Well, yeah, that's not true in everywhere. Some places you've got more water than you can use. Um, so it's worth worth spreading our comparative net as widely as possible. Greg, before we finish, can you remind our listeners the name of your book and where can they get it from? Well, it's um, it's called The Life and Death of Ancient Cities, A Natural History, and it's published by Oxford University Press. And, of course, it's available at all good bookstores everywhere, and um, even a mail-order one beginning with the letter A. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. That was so enlightening. I need to tell everybody, go out and get the book I've read out. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I've learned so much so much about the uh, the evolution of cities so thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me don't forget that we do exist on patreon as history hack and on patreon as well which is podbean's own version uh elena and i have had massive fun doing this in 2020 uh but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living etc if we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload then we will need your help so uh, if you join There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.